what we've been pursuing in this series that we've entitled My Gospel. Like I've said before, if you uh, don't remember anything else out of this series, if you remember the first statement on your handout there, Christianity is largely a revelation received by the Apostle Paul. And of course, he uses that very word, uh, revelation, in the first chapter of uh, the book of Galatians. So Paul says uh, some shocking things. He takes uh, liberty with the Old Testament text. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, What if somebody showed up at your home or at your church or, you know, your whatever group you associated with or at work, and they started saying, it's okay to murder people. Most of us, though, would recoil from such a statement. Uh, we would say, well, no, 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 wait a minute. It's, um, um, I think it's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. So uh, on what basis are you saying that it's now okay to murder? Um, in many ways, when Paul begins to assert that circumcision is no longer necessary for Jews, it's, it had the same kind of shocking effect. And so uh, we've asked the question, who gave Paul uh, the right to say these things? And we're attempting to answer that very question. So this uh, sheet that you have out uh, today is kind of a, conti- we didn't finish last week on on this subject, the gospel, no. So if you look at number two, the two words that are missing in the middle of the word no, K-N-O-W, the gospel, no. We're talking about that there comes a time in the life of the church when confrontation is necessary, debate. We heard it in the passage this morning. There was much debate. There was no small dissension. There was a conflict. Uh, are we going to include the others, in this case the Gentiles, into the body of Christ? Are we going to include the others without stipulating any additional commands? And we see in the text that the party of the Pharisees, or Paul later calls us the circumcision party, they're suggesting they have this kind of clarifying word, just like uh, when certain uh, people were directed by James to uh, leave the church in Jerusalem and go down to Antioch and to see what was going on, what, what was the nature of the revival there. Uh, those brothers had a clarifying word that these Gentile people that are coming in, we're glad they're coming in, but uh, in order to be saved, they're going to have to be circumcised. I would just say this as an aside. Whenever you hear um, uh, someone talking about what you have to do to be saved, that should cause a red flag to go up immediately. It typically means that the person doesn't really understand salvation by grace through faith, that they're still oriented in the direction of what is it that I need to do, uh, men and brethren, uh, what, what do we need to do 
to be saved, they're still oriented in that direction. One of the things that is kind of coming together in this, and if you haven't caught this drift already, Acts 15.11 are the very last words that are recorded that Peter speaks in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, as we've seen, and it ends in Rome. It begins with Peter as the major protagonist, Acts 2. Um, Acts 8, Acts 10, he has the keys to the kingdom. He opens up uh, salvation to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. But from Acts 15, 11, after Peter makes this statement where basically he concurs with Paul, he's basically saying the way to move forward on this subject is to admit that Paul's gospel is correct. And we've already talked about this. He says, Peter and James will go to the circumcision. Paul and Barnabas will go to the uncircumcision. And I've said this before. It is almost the way Luke writes the book of Acts. He is trying to show that there is harmony that exists in the church between Peter, if if I could put it this way, between Peter's gospel and Paul's gospel. Uh, But it's almost as if God, uh, the way Luke tells the story, is if God is just waiting for Peter to come to this realization, and then we don't hear anything more from Peter. We, We have to consult Eusebius, an early church historian, to see what happens in Peter's life from this point forward. And then the book of Acts which is kind of let Paul in through the back door. Acts chapter 7, he stands there holding the coats of others who are stoning Stephen. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is converted. Uh, But by the time we get to this council meeting in Acts chapter 15, Paul is front and center, and Peter kind of exits stage right. Now that is not to say... Peter has played an insignificant role. It is to say that there is a certain linear progression. You know, we get the word progress or being a progressive. There is a certain uh, progression, linear progression in the book of Acts where we go from an early, really unrefined message to the end of the book of Acts where we have the Apostle Paul saying, while Jews are visiting him, while he is under house arrest, the Apostle Paul is saying, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised Jews, you won't hear the gospel, but the Gentiles will. So it's very telling in the church, even in 2022, when people will emphasize or try to put in opposition Peter's gospel and Paul's gospel. I heard a preacher preach a sermon, and in the sermon he said, he said, it's interesting, you know, how people get all focused on Jesus in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then they skip right over to the book of, uh, the book of Acts. He's, he's a Pentecostal preacher. Then they skip right over the book of Acts into Paul's epistles. It's a telling statement, isn't it? 
because then there are the people who they're not in the gospels, they're not in the epistles at all. The, their only focus is the book of Acts. And for example, I, I have a good friend, at least he used to be a good friend back in Bible school days. He's probably less of a good friend now, but he, he wrote a book, Acts 2.38. His wife um, made a post on Facebook about that. And uh, I posted, I'm waiting for him to write his book entitled Acts 15.11. We believe that we will be saved by the grace of God, even as they. You see? So you cannot deny it. You can focus on Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, and like, these are the big stones in the river, and you're going to get from this side to the other side by hop, skip, and jump over those stones. But a very careful reading of the book of Acts you come to the understanding that the church's message, and I hesitate to use this word because it's a bad word in our, our culture right now, the church's message evolved. It was refined. It evolved and it was refined because there was this compulsion. The Holy Spirit was flooding into the uttermost parts of the world and the church had to accommodate the move of the Spirit, and we're always behind what the Holy Spirit is doing. We're always trying to figure out what, what is God doing, where is he leading, um, and this is where we ended last week on a uh, passage from Isaiah 43 where God says, I'm going to do a new thing. I don't want you to consider the things of old. Now imagine that. For us who are conservatives and reactionaries, we are all about doggedly preserving the past, the traditions of the past, the customs of the past. We don't like change. Uh, coming down the elevator in the hospital yesterday, uh, a guy about my age, he was on his cell phone. And when he got off his cell phone, I said to him, what did we do before cell phones? He said it was better, he said. He was 63, he told me. It was better before we had cell phones. I guess that's debatable. But for us who are conservatives, that's what it means to be a conservative. You are, you know, Gore Vidal and William Buckley are going to have a conversation. Vidal is the, the liberal progressive and Buckley is the the old school Republican libertarian, and why are they at loggerheads? Because one is saying there's something about the past that we need to preserve and moving into the future, we don't need to destroy the past. And Vidal is like, forget the past. This is a new day. Um, so, so rarely do we hear in fundamentalist conservative churches what God says in Isaiah 53, remember not the former things. <laughs> We're always appealing to the past, right? We're saying, you know, church just isn't the same nowadays. Have you ever heard somebody, you may have said it. I may have, I've, I have said it. Church is not the same. 
Um, I remember when, you know, when church on Sunday night started at eight o'clock and, and nobody re- quote unquote received the Holy ghost or they said received it <laughs> until after midnight. Do you, re- I can remember there were Monday, many Monday mornings when Jody and I didn't make it to school because like we didn't get home till late on Sunday night. Now we're like. How many of us were relieved when years ago we said we're not having church on Sunday night anymore? Well, some of us were relieved. Some of us were upset. There aren't too many churches, American churches, that have church on Sunday night anymore. I remember Jim Cimbala being very critical about, he asked the question a bunch of ministers, how many of you still have church on Sunday night, and practically nobody raised their hand. He was like, oh, that's bad. That's very bad. You see, so the appeal to the past is strong. Uh, We hear it when preachers say, don't forget the landmarks. Don't forget the old paths. And yet God here says to his people Israel, I don't want you to refer to the past. I didn't say it. He did. Look. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new, say it with me, a a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. Now, I think this verse is quoted too much by people who just want to do something new, right? They're not necessarily in sync with the the new thing that God is doing. They just want to do a new thing. God says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? So there's the problem. And I think I have this in statement number uh, six. It's not, say it with me. It's not new to God. It's new to what? It's new to us. It's new to us. How could it be, how could any, and we covered this last week, How could there be anything new in that sense to God? And so God is speaking in terms that you and I as human beings can understand. What did uh, Jeremiah say? Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Are they new to God or are they new to us? They're new to us. Uh, We didn't. We don't perceive it. We don't see it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So it's not new to God. It's new to us. So we ended at this point uh, last week with statement number seven. Sometimes the new requires we say no. So if you go back to statement number two, the gospel, no, K-N-O-W, the middle word in the word K-N-O-W is what? No. It's not, we don't pronounce no, kano, do we? The K is silent. There's a now in this word, too. There, there's, there's a three-point sermon. Uh, to know God, to know others, now. I, 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 you can work on that for me. Sometimes the new requires we say no, no. And this is really what's happening in this council meeting. 
what the party of the Pharisees has suggested as a custom. Here, here comes their clarifying words. It seems to be something that wouldn't matter that much. You know, here, let's be careful about the people in the body of Christ who have these traditions and customs from years ago. And, and let's, let's suggest maybe that the Gentiles should defer to these customs and traditions and that they should uh, submit themselves to the law of Moses in, in particular circumcision. But the custom then uh, becomes a demand. If you look at the text again, in Acts chapter 15, the party of the Pharisees, verse 5, rose up. There's always, always a party rising up. I rise in opposition, Mr. Chairman, at this meeting and said, it is necessary. See, now it's not just a suggestion or a custom. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So sometimes the new requires we say, no, no, we will not conform to what you imagine as the will of God. No, we will not become what you imagine we must be. Paul and Barnabas embodied the Antiochian no. And of course, we don't know, K-N-O-W, we don't know whether the incident, the confrontation between Paul and Peter and Antioch took place before this council meeting or it took place after. We don't know if the confrontation, you know, when the elephants fight, then the grass suffers. And here we have Paul and Peter. Uh, Paul tells us uh, this story in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Certain men came down from Jerusalem and Peter, who was a Jew, was living his life as a Gentile, but when certain Jews from James were sent down, then Peter's like, oh, I better straighten up here. Uh, the, the big wigs from headquarters have come down to inspect what is going on here. And he withdrew himself from the Gentiles. Paul says, there's a principle here that will be sacrificed if I don't address it. And say to Peter, you are no... You, you can't do this because you are acting hypocritically. The peer pressure was so strong that Paul says even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy and their dissimulation. Paul says, what is at stake here, two phrases, two times he uses the phrase in the book of Galatians, the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is at stake here. Why are you, here's the question that he asks uh, Peter, why are you a Jew who has been living like a Gentile now forcing the Gentiles to live like, a, like Jews? <laughs> you would not want to be under the intense inspection of the Apostle Paul because he's going to call you out and he's going to have his reasons why, and the logic is going to be impeccable. And at the end of the day, if you're Peter, when you show up in Jerusalem for this first council, you're going to be the first one to speak and say, nope, I got it wrong. That's what it means then 
uh, to embody, to say no. Before we can know, K-N-O-W, the gospel, we have to say to no to gospel imposters. Did you get that? And if we don't say no to gospel pretenders, then we will never K-N-O-W the gospel. Uh, look at uh, number eight. Uh, what does Peter say? We ended in verse six. Look at uh, verse seven of chapter 15. So sometimes in the church, we opt for easy solutions that don't have uh, enduring power. I, I believe, actually, that this is one of the mistakes of leadership in Acts chapter 15. The whole thing is focused not on Jewish responsibility to the Gentiles in the church, but the whole thing is focused on what the Gentiles owe the Jews in the church. Here are the things that are going to make us happy. Here are the new rules that we're going to impose on you if you want to be part of us. Do you see it? Do you see, <laughs> do you see that in, in the church, the church has always uh, championed the cause of the other. So they're still debating. Peter stands up, and what does he say? Brothers, you know that in the early days, so this is, this is many years, if he's referring to uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, in the video clip, he said it's at least a decade. It, it may be longer than that. You know that in the early days, see, so... So here's an appeal to the past, right? But this is how to correctly appeal to the past. We don't appeal to the past. Sometimes our appeal to the past is, you know, 2020 vision, looking back, rose-colored glasses. We think that it was all perfect in the past. And Thanks be to God, the human mind and spirit has a way of forgetting the, th the bad things that happened in the past, and we're left with the residue of good things that happened in our life. So Peter here, he is not neglecting an appeal to the past, but he is making the proper application. Look what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring specifically to Cornelius' household. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, right? This was Peter's defense when he went back to Jerusalem and explained what, what happened in Cornelius' house. Here's an Italian centurion, a Gentile, that while Peter yet spake the word, right, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell. And what does Peter say? There's no argument now. Who can forbid these people water because the Holy Spirit has fallen on them just as the Holy Spirit fell on us on the day of Pentecost. You see, Peter was hedging his bet there. He knew that this debate, this council, this question was a hot question, and he is 
taking careful notes, like Judy Draper told me, uh, when you deal with a lawyer or a cause in law that you have to take careful notes. He was defending his position. Because for the first time in the life of the church now, Gentiles, apparently God didn't have any problem with Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, even as Jews received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So he's recounting this story. This this is the proper appeal to the past. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? Having cleansed their hearts by baptism. Having cleansed their hearts by doing the right thing and getting circumcised. Having cleansed their hearts by, gee, I hope tomorrow, today was a bad day, but I'm going to try harder tomorrow. What is the cleansing soap that God uses? Faith. So you see, if you're Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19 kind of person, this this whole passage here is a problem. And the way you might explain it is say, well, yeah, yeah, we believe in the cross. And we believe in God's grace, and we believe that a person has to believe and must have faith. And then the next word out of their mouth is a small three-letter word that begins with the letter B. It's but, you see? And, And that's what we have in Acts chapter 15. The first word of Acts chapter 15 in verse 1 is what? But. Then we move in the passage down to verse 5. But certain members of the party of the Pharisees. So you have to be very careful with people. Look, if you really understand the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, everything else pales in comparison to it. If you really understand it and submit yourself to salvation by grace through faith, there are no What's left? <laughs> you said it, I didn't. What does he say? God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What's the uh, word, first word of verse 10? You know, that's in the word now is in the gospel, no. See that? Okay, this is what God did in the past. How are we going to correctly apply what God has done in the now? Look, now, therefore, here, on the basis of everything I've said, what is the therefore, therefore, right? On the basis of what I've just said to you, what is the conclusion? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear? You see, they had a rosy view. The the party of the Pharisees, the circumcision party, had a rosy view of the good old days when the law of Moses uh, prevailed and everybody in Israel was circumcised and we were all doing the thing the way God has told us to do. 
Paul comes along and says, don't need to do that anymore. Well, that gave rise to much dissension and debate, great debate. So now Peter is actually calling them out on their view of the past, and he's saying, it didn't work. It didn't work. Why are you persisting in pursuing something that doesn't work? We now have the Holy Spirit. We now, uh, see, this is why Paul teases out the meaning of what happens in the book of Acts. We now have Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's, that is Paul's unique phrase, to be in Christ, the two most powerful words in the New Testament. What, what do you mean by that, Paul, in Christ? So I, I think this is what um, the previous speaker in the video clip meant when he said Paul got kind of testy here. Look what he says. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now we get to a proper but. <laughs> Look at it, verse 11. Read it with me. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. The debate has been settled. Now, I don't think that they went as far as they should have in this. And in fact, I think that the conclusions that they came to under the leadership of James really reflects the desire for believing Jews to keep good relations with the non-believing Jews. Well, at least they can say, yeah, they're Christians, they're followers of Jesus, they believe Jesus is the Son of God. But you know, they, they do require their people to be circumcised. Remember that? If you go to Brother So-and-So's church, there's certain things that you have to do. We were raised on this. So the, the debate itself brought no light. And we hate these kind of discussions where it seems the deeper we go into the discussion, the further you go, the more dark it gets. There's no light. And I don't know how to avoid that. Some of those things you've just got to talk out. If you've ever had that kind of conversation with your husband or wife, when you've come to a critical point, in your marriage, it it can be a it can be risky business because you may stub your toes on stuff that ha has been or you recognize as a reoccurring problem or difficulty in your relationship. It's not an easy thing to have that honest conversation. I remember. Uh, and Christy hates it when I refer to it, but she'll just have to be a hater. When she looked at me and she said with tears in her eyes, am I not the love of your life? What more condemning words could a husband hear from his wife? Well, of course. These are not 
easy conversations to have because sometimes the light comes late. Peter is thinking out loud. He's moving on new terrain created by the Spirit. He is yet speaking in Israel, meaning uh, to Jews and to Jews, but the ground has shifted. The ground has cracked open to expose another layer beneath the layer they and their ancestors had been moving and living on. You see, God is doing a new thing. Number nine, this underlayer had been there all the time. How could it be any other way? Does God change his mind? Please give me the right answer to this question after some 40 years. Does God change his mind? No. If God changed his mind, that would be an admission that he had some wrong thinking going on. The verse Walter Gwynn always quoted, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children. You see, so there are, God has counsels that haven't been revealed to us. They're secret, they're only known to him. And when we stub our toes on something like this and Oh my God, what a problem this is. Gentiles, Cornelius house, they're all speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit fell. Uh, What are we going to do with this? Well, Peter says, there's really no argument against it. Who can forbid them to be water baptized, to become genuine members of the body of Christ? The underlayer had been there all the time, giving life to the people. And now that grace was being exposed, Not by the cunning of reason, but by grace's embodiment, Jesus Christ. God's hand on Gentile flesh was just as full and free as it was on Jewish flesh. Galatians chapter 3, we'll start with a but in verse 25. But now that faith has come, you see, not water baptism, not speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are, what's the next word? Y'all are sons of God, how? Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, baptism has its place, into Christ have put on Christ. Read it with me, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The writer of the book of Acts, then Luke, has brought us inside a paradigm shift, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, paradigm shift as it is taking place in Israel. We we have become, the, the shock has worn off. Imagine this, when Jesus shows up, Abraham called, came to know God as his father 2,500 years before Jesus shows up. 1,500 years before Jesus shows up, God gives the law to Moses. Can, can we even comprehend a span of time, 2,500 years, 1,500 years, the tradition, what is that, fiddler on a roof? Tradition, tradition, right? Can we even begin to comprehend? And Paul bursts on the scene and he says, it's okay to murder folks now. 
we would fight against it too. We would militate it against, you know what? COVID has imposed itself on the church. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Trust me when I say this. Nobody knows what church in America is going to look like in the future. And it's possible, it's possible that God has used COVID to impose a new battle rhythm on the American church. Lucas brought us inside a paradigm shift as it is taking place in Israel. This is risky work. Yeah, that's an understatement. You get killed over this kind of stuff. You get beaten within an inch of your life with this kind of stuff. You get left for dead. You get run out of town. You get uh, tarred and feather. You get boiled in oil. You could lose your life. This is risky work. John Calvin was considered to be the uh, apostle of the Holy Spirit because if you correctly assess human nature, as I believe John Calvin does in the doctrine of total depravity, and I believe it's based on the biblical, the pessimistic view of the Bible on uh, unregenerated man. If you correctly assess what we, we face, what I face in my unregenerate self, what we face in other unregenerate people, it immediately forces you to become dependent on the Holy Spirit. My presentation does not have the power to affect you. Your word of witness is good, but unless the Holy Spirit is involved, unless the Holy Spirit plants a new life principle in a person's heart. So I really believe that I've become more spirit-focused than ever before. And if you read the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, the Spirit is referred to more in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans than any other place in the Bible. So people say you do a hop, skip, and a jump right over the book of Acts, and you want to go into the book of Romans. Well, the book of Romans explains in a refined and greater detail what has occurred in the narrative that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. You can go through it. Read the eighth chapter of the book of Romans and, and underline the word spirit in it, and you'll find that if you really want to be spirit-focused, this, this should, be, should receive attention. I'll close with this. Look at verse 31. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, so conformed, conforming is the work of sanctification. So some people say, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you, you emphasize justification so much that you de-emphasize the work of sanctification. Here Paul is saying, God loves you enough to save you by grace through faith, and he will not leave you in the same shape you were. You will be conformed. Is that what it says? Not me, Pastor Allen. I have free will. <laughs> Look, he predestined you not to just go around and, and give witness to uh, cheap grace or be a disciple of antinomianism. No, he has 
predestined you to be conformed, to be transformed, if you'd allow me to use that word, to the image of his son in order that, there it is. Whenever you see those three words in Paul's writings, you really need to under, underline them because he's, he is delving into, right? He was a man who was caught up into heaven. He didn't know whether in the body, out of the body. Paul had seen things and heard things and received by revelation things that were really under the category of the secret things that belong to God. Here it is, look. In order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's sometimes referred to as the golden chain. There's five links in the golden chain. Paul pushes away from the table. He continues on after a bit of thought. He says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? You see, that may be the most important question that any Christian ever asks. When they're reading the scriptures, and they may have been raised in a tradition that where there's this constant appeal to the past, that we cannot change the past, that Here's the problem that I have with restoration church movements was that the church was perfect in the book of Acts and now God, we need to get back to that perfect restoration of the church. God needs to restore us to get... The church was never perfect in the book of Acts. If the church was perfect in the book of Acts, why was there much debate and great dissension over this issue? Why, if, if the church was perfect, why wasn't there perfect harmony then? But then shall we say to these things, how do I synthesize the past, the present, and what the, the new thing that God is doing? What shall we say then to these things? It's really a shame when you have a Christian who is thoughtless and unthinking. What then shall we say to these things? Here are the positive things you can say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also be with him, gracious, with him graciously give us what? All things. Paul's asking questions here. That's the third question. Who shall bring any charge against God's, oh, we hate this word, elect. Like, oh, no, 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 I don't have a doctrine of election. Well, the Bible has a doctrine of election. The Bible uses the word election, according to N.T. Wright, was one of the hallmarks of being a Jew. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He begins answering his own questions here, because nobody else has the right answer to that question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? He answers the question, who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or per persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul substantiates that question as it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, what is the word there? No, 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 no. Wrong conclusion. 
you don't get it if you follow the logic of his argument in the, in the book of Romans up to the end of the eighth chapter. Look, no. See that? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now underline the next four words. For I am sure. This is an example of where the gospel no, the no, the N-O precedes the K-N-O-W, the no. If we don't reject the gospel pretenders, we will, we will never be persuaded. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is my conclusion, number 12. The reason you don't know K-N-O-W is because you've not said, no, there are, are certain things that are no longer acceptable because the grace paradigm has shifted itself into place. Yeah, you have to say, nope, not going there. Can't do that. Not a good explanation. Apparently, you haven't thought this thing through. Nope, that no leads to the for I am sure. We believe that we will be saved by the grace of God even as they are. And then... You want to read about Peter in the book of Acts? It ain't there. Luke, who is a Gentile himself, is clearly, he's clearly making a statement here. Where the church started in Jerusalem is not the same church that ends in Rome. Amen. Thank you, Father. For the gospel, no. The no, the no, the now. Help us as believers to be correctly related to the past, to have proper respect for the past, the customs and traditions. But help us to also be ready to admit that when the Holy Spirit comes in like a flood, that those waters go wherever they want. Help us to remember the words of Jesus. You, you can't tell where the wind came from. You can't tell where it's going. Here we see it in, in the book of Acts. The leaders of the church are feeling their way forward, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is doing a work that cannot be denied. We have received that gospel. We have been transformed by that gospel. Our lives and the lives of our families have been renewed and filled because of that gospel. Help us to live that gospel, to let that light shine. Not that we're trying to be witnesses, but that we are witnesses. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.